Standard Issue for all women. Hello, this is Sarah Milliken and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. Uh, what you're about to listen to is a recording of the final book event on my book tour. It was recorded as part of the Cambridge Literary Festival and the host was excellent Standard Issue Deputy Editor Hannah Dunleavy. Uh, we had a cracking time. We were in quite a swanky Cambridge Uni venue and uh, I did some readings. Hannah and I had a really good chat and then we took some audience questions. Uh, so dig in, have a bloody good listen and just as a head up the bit where I'm reading from Paul Hollywood's Who Do You Think You Are review, which is in my book. Um, the reason the audience are laughing more than you might think they should be is because uh, at the same time as reading it, I was also miming a wanking an imaginary cock. Enjoy, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome your host, Hannah Dunleavy. Thank you. That's very nice. I'm very excited to be here today, partly because it's quite exciting to stand on a stage that has been occupied by loads of people that I admire over the years. Um, I'm sure the uh, website will be updating itself to include my appearance any moment now. (laughs) I'm also quite excited to be able to share the stage tonight with somebody else that I really admire. So if you please welcome to the stage, award-winning comedian and now best-selling author, Sarah Millican. Are you well? That's nice. And you're upstairs as well. Give us a cheer if you're upstairs. And down. It's not the sort of building that's used to cheering, is it? <laughs> I'm guessing it's not the sort of building that's used to fucking swearing either. Um, <laughs> but me and my nine GCSEs are here to entertain. Um, <laughs> um, thank you very much for coming, everybody. Um, I'm going to uh, start off with a, a reading. Uh, this is the foreword of my book. Champion. Adjective British in formal dialect. One. Excellent. Thank you, lad, the farmer said. That's champion. Which is a typical dictionary boffin's idea of what a northerner sounds like. As soon as I've milked these cows and egged these chickens, I'll get cracking on me book. I've called it how to be champion because that's what I always strive for. Being champion. And I wanted it, as well as being my autobiography, to be a bit self-helpy. When I described the book to my best friend, she said, do you mean the sort of book you wish someone had given you at 16? Exactly that. If I'd known then that work is better than school, bullies get their comeuppance by having a boring life, you will grow boobs and they will be huge. I'd have been much less anxious and would have started saving for giant bras. I wanted to make it clear that your life doesn't need to be perfect. You don't need to look a certain way to be happy. You don't need to be amazing at everything all of the time. I am, at times, a shoddy daughter, friend, person. Not wife, though. Always brilliant at that. (laughs) Isn't that right, Gary? He's shouting what from the other room, but I'm choosing to hear yes. (laughs) But I try my best, and I try to be champion. Champion is Geordie for good or all right. But champion is a better word than all right. All right can mean great. How's the new relationship going? It's all right. But it can also mean not quite shit, but teetering. (laughs) How's the sex? 
It's all right. <laughs> Sad face emoticon. Need to wank as soon as he's left emoticon. <laughs> That's why emoticons exist, because some words have too many meanings. Take better as another example. It can mean slightly improved. How's the sex now that you've bought him that manual? It's better. Zigzag mouth emoticon. Oh, it can mean totally better, maximum better. How's the genital warts? Better. All cleared up, gone away. You can't even tell my cock used to look like a witch's chin. Champion is a much better word. As a noun, it means the best, victorious, a winner. As in, we are the champions. It says a lot about you whether the Queen anthem just went through your mind or the theme tune to the brilliant kids' TV show, We Are the Champions. <laughs> That's not how I mean it. I'm all about the adjective. Champion means canny, means pretty good, means not bad, means fair to midland, means cracking on with life, means now to bother. That's what I want to always be champion. I think it's important to not to give yourself the pressure of having to be amazing all the time. It's also sometimes used as a verb. Because of Standard Issue, my no-bullshit women's podcast, I'm often referred to as championing women. Championing. I'm pretty sure that's also French for mushroom. The title, of this book was, the title of this book was picked from a list of potentials. I knew I wanted something that was very me. Maybe using a word people associate with me, like nunny or claggy. The obvious title there is perhaps a little graphic, though generally true. What about something super Geordie, like Gan Canny, I Love Pasties, or Hadaway and Shite? With the latter, there was a worry people would think it was an aggressive autobiography from the popular 90s pop star who asked, What is love? repeatedly while I danced around De Niro's in South Shields with patent leather chunky heels and a mirage and lemonade. I tried to think of what a tabloid newspaper might call my book and came up with cakey cakey fat cunt. <laughs> I asked my husband Gary, who is also a comic and is a genius with words, to help me. I said I liked the word champion and maybe he could come up with some wordplay around that. Now, one thing you need to know about my husband is that he ranks wordplay way above his marriage. Or indeed, anyone's feelings. His suggestion was heavyweight champion. He also suggested I use the phrase older and wider in the blurb. I have helped him with the title for his next tour, Short Jokes, Fat Man. <laughs> and hilariously, he's actually considering using it. Thank you. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Hi. Great book. Oh, thanks. I have read it. Oh, well, that's a good start. Yeah. <laughs> this bit would have been really awkward if you hadn't. <laughs> yeah, it's just... Um, what's it about? <laughs> <laughs> Me. <laughs> now, you've obviously done a lot of writing move that before. Out of the way, that's a shitty view. Sorry. Say again. You've obviously done a lot of writing before. Yes. You know, as in, you've written articles, mm. you write comedy. Yes. You've written a play. Is the process of writing, was the process of writing this different? Were there things that you put down 
and you thought, you know what, that would work better on stage. I'm going to keep that for there. Um, it was almost the opposite, really, I suppose. It was very different um, because when I write stand-up, every single... If it's not a punchline, it's, it's lead into a punchline. Right. So I knew that for this, I was allowed to have more space and I could... I wanted it to be funny throughout because I thought that was, you know, an autobiography of a comedian fucking should be. Um, <laughs> but I thought it would be nice if I could go more in-depth in certain subjects and to, so tell stories that um, gave away a lot about me and, and were very personal, but also uh, were funny in places but didn't necessarily have to be a stand-up routine. Um, and also it did give me... Uh, because stand-up is something I'm constantly writing, so it's always a thing I'm always sort of scribbling uh, or sending myself text messages. I, I send, I, do, you, do you text yourself notes? Um, yeah, sometimes. Because I, I, the three things I text myself are where I've parked. Oh. Oh, I take a photo of that. Oh, do you? Yeah. Oh, that's a good idea. Where I've parked, potential joke ideas, or things I think might be wrong with me that I need to Google later. <laughs> and depending on what, what that is, those two... So it could be mixed up. It could be like, is that a joke about me fanny or is that a problem I've got with me fanny? <laughs> so uh, stand-up is a constant, whereas this was something I could dedicate a large chunk of time to and I could sit at a desk and actually physically write. And a lot, does it make a difference to you guys if you know that I didn't have my bra on for a lot of it? <laughs> does it make you want to buy it more? <laughs> um, one of my friends who um, proofread the book said... Um, I think your tits might have been clicking some of the buttons. Because <laughs> there was apparently too many eyes at one point. So I don't know where the eye... I can't remember where the eye is in relation to where my nipples were, but I think that might be why. Um, so I think, in answer to your question, I think um, it wasn't so much that I, I, I wrote something and thought, ooh, I'll keep that for stand-up. Yeah. It was more that it was something that I knew wouldn't work as stand-up, but I got to kind of get into the nitty-gritty and explore more and have potentially more fun with and take more time over. Yeah. So, you have explained the ethos of how to be champions yes. um, there. And I would say that's actually the ethos of the whole book. The message mm. is, it is okay to just be doing okay. Yeah. Yeah. There is, I mean, I think we can all agree that there is too much pressure on women still in 2017 to be doing things perfectly, to be getting everything right all the time. Mm. That's something you feel too. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I used to... I've never conformed, but I used to feel bad about not conforming, and now I don't give a shit. Uh, I know that you're not supposed to wear flowery socks with silver shoes. That's a thing, isn't it? That's a, oh, you don't wear socks with those shoes. That should be pop socks or nothing. Fuck off. Uh, <laughs> My ankles are sometimes cold and I like a sock and I find pop socks ridiculous. I find tights very thrushy. So I will do what I want regardless of whether it appeals to you. Um, also, I, I it's often don't paint my nails. I've never had... I had a, oh, I had a manicure once uh, just before a first date and I thought it would be a nice thing to do. And I'd never had a manicure before and never since. And I was on my lunch break at work and it overran the appointment. She took too long and she said, they're not dry. And I said, I haven't got time. I've got to get back to my bloody desk. So I went out of the door and my coat, the, the front of the coat was windy, swung open and caught every single one oh. of my fingers and thumbs, which is quite skillful because they're not all on the line. 
Like you could see I would catch all of the fingers, but the thumbs as well. And they were all smudged. So that's the only manicure I've ever had. And I will regularly now paint my nails and let them get to the point where they're chipped a fuck and I just don't care. I just don't care. I'm so... That's kind of on the front of the book, for those of you who've seen it up close, um, it does have um, a button wrong on your cardi and there's a loop... Uh, coming out, you know, those horrible loops that nobody knows what they're for. They're just a waste of fucking... You know, the first thing you do is cut them off. And then sometimes you accidentally cut a hole in your cardio and you hate yourself for a week. And then... <laughs> and the label's sticking out on the back. And, and I just thought, it, it, none of it matters. It just doesn't matter. Although I thought it was quite entertaining. On the, the day the book came out, I did BBC Breakfast. And lovely Louise Minchin was interviewing me. And when the interview was over and the cameras had stopped rolling, she said... Um, her daughter, who I think is sort of late, maybe sort of 10 or 11 or 12, maybe early teens, uh, had pointed to the cover and seen that the button was done wrong. And she went, oh, look, mummy, what a shame. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the millions of people who had to check the book and make the book and print the book. And, you know, I hadn't spotted it and it was just a mistake, uh, which I thought was quite adorable, but not what a shame. Well fucking done. Um, <laughs> it just, life is hard enough as it is without having the like when I so as an example when I wrote the BAFTA article if you don't know what this is I went to the BAFTAs had a lovely time at the BAFTAs and then was absolutely pulled apart on social media and on the telly and in newspapers because I had the wrong kind of dress on I'm sorry did it cover me was I warm enough did I feel lovely tick 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 fuck off um <laughs> thanks And, and that really, when I wrote that, I wrote it, oh my God, I was so furious, and I wrote it, and it went so, so I don't know what the definition of viral is, I don't know if that's a number, but it went mental. And if your mum gets to see it, I think that's when you consider it viral. Oh really? Yeah. If, it, if it gets to people that it wouldn't normally yeah. get to. And it, it was so nice to have so much support, and so many members of the public, and also friends, and also industry people go, oh good, thank you, and like this is what we think as well. So from then on, I just decided to do exactly what I wanted to do. And I don't, like, I, I probably wardrobe malfunction all of the time, according to some people, but as long as all of the tits are in, it doesn't matter, does it? I agree 100%. <laughs> and I say that as someone that if you said, can I come back to yours later, you'd have to sit in the car while I hoovered. <laughs> I would hope that you wouldn't have to hoover for me. Uh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I'll just keep my eyes level. Do you ever do that? We just think, just, just don't look down. Don't, if you come in the house, don't look down. <laughs> there might be pants that you don't want to see. Um, I think if, you, if your friends are the sort that you can't just not hoover in front of, I don't think they're special friends. <laughs> no, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Should I do a... Is yeah, it should we, have, should we, we do another, another reading? reading? I'm moving this microphone. I've given myself a little bit of admin each time, haven't I? This is... Now, let's have a look. Where are we at? Number two. So this is... I wanted to write a chapter about... Um, I have a very bad body image. Uh, it's a work in progress. I'm working on it, but it's not great a lot of the time. And I decided I wanted to write a chapter about it where I got, like we were saying before, into the sort of nitty-gritty of it. And uh, my editor said I don't like... I don't like the title, body. it was just called Body Image. She said, I don't like the title. And I said, how about Sometimes I Hate Myself? And she was like, that's great, let's have that. <laughs> <laughs> so this is in the chapter entitled Sometimes I Hate Myself. 
Uh, I was asked to do uh, a podcast called The Guilty Feminist. Uh, it was about knowing your worth. Uh, I think when I uh, said yes to doing the show, I didn't quite know, I, had, I, hadn't, I couldn't quite work out how I felt about it. It's a work in progress for me. I think because... There's, I think, sorry, I think better of myself than I used to. I think that's because now I allow myself to take my worth from me rather than from others. A good example of this is an old review I only saw the other day. I wasn't looking for it. I try not to see these things. For the title sequence for Who Do You Think You Are, they make you do this thing where you turn and smile at the same time. And I can't. But until then, I did not know that because nobody had asked me to. Why would it come up? I was with my friend Tom, and he said, Oh, remember those titles? I laughed out loud when I saw yours. We tried to find them online, and they are available. They're hilarious because all of the people who are actors were great at it. That's just a normal day for them, turning and smiling. All of the people who weren't actors, like John Simpson and me, were just shit at it. I urge you all to Google it when you get home. I had to do mine in public. We were out and about, and by the time I'd nailed it, as in done one that was acceptable to the producers, there was a crowd. So while we were looking for the clips, I sort of fell across the review. Tom said, don't read it. But I thought, it was ages ago, and also it's different. For if you do a stand-up show, they can say, it's shit. But I didn't think they could say, your ancestors are shit. This is from the review of the show. Sarah Millican has made... I'm going to try and do different voices for it so that you can see I'm coming back to me. Sarah Millican... i do it this voice. Sarah Millican has made audiences laugh with a piping Geordie voice and a dumpy figure. <laughs> Seemingly designed to model printed floral dresses and wellies, but she soon shows that she is not as daft as she looks. Now, at the moment, are you aware of what this is reviewing? No, this is reviewing my physical appearance, not my ancestors. No mention of a diver there or the fur trade. So then it says, In Who Do You Think You Are? BBC One, discovering that her ancestor, James Holt, a marine diver, had by 1851, aged 34, fathered five children. She exclaimed, I'm 37 and I've just got a cat. That's fair enough. It's factually accurate for the show. I've since got another cat and a dog, actually. Perhaps it was because of her professional success, as we were told, followed on the heels of a divorce after seven years of marriage, that she was so moved to discover of her ancestors' struggle to leave descendants. Well, why watch the rest of the programme where you could just assume it? So one minute she appeared comically from a diving, out from a diving suit of the kind Holt would have worn, and the next minute wept as she learned of his making a gift to seven children left orphans by a shipwreck. He was an all-round good man, she declared, with more loyalty than evidence. It's quite harsh, isn't it? My favourite bit is at the end. But Malcolm, lost one day in the freezing waste, suffered frostbite so that both of his feet had to be amputated at the trading station. I, expect that to be his I expected that to be his end, but amazingly he returned to Orkney, married and fathered five children of his own. I was unprepared for how protective I'd feel of my ancestors, Millican concluded, perhaps aware of her new big house with only the cat waiting for her return. What the actual fuck? <laughs> so
So what that review has done is said that I'm dumpy, I wear flowery dresses and wellies, and there's a dig in the middle about only having a cat instead of children, because obviously kids are the be-all and end-all, and then the big empty house with just a cat for company. So I am worthless unless I am married with children. Sure, she's got feet, but that's it, right? And they're in wellies anyway. Doesn't she have any heels? Oh, fuck off. (laughs) From the same newspaper by a different journalist, as that guy hadn't written any more reviews of Who Do You Think You Are, I found a review that was of a man's episode. It was Paul Hollywood. So I read this, and at various points, it says, it made for an absorbing and affecting hour of television. They call him a silver fox, and it made me wonder, what is the female equivalent of a silver fox? There isn't one. Meanwhile, Hollywood, so exacting in the big-off tent, and often the butt of a co-presenter's jokes, comes across beautifully. He was palpably proud of his forebears and touched by his grandfather's love letters home to his sweetheart, yet never wallowed in sentimentality, turning away from the cameras when he had something in his eye and retaining his dryly self-deprecating sense of humour. Good bloke, good big. <laughs> Thanks. Now, this is not a dig at Paul Hollywood, he's a lovely man, but this never mentions that he is a little bit overweight, never mentions what he's wearing, what his family situation is like, whether he has a wife, kids, anything like that. They didn't start by saying, lonely, grey-haired, dumpy Paul Hollywood (laughs) has made his career by eating bread and wearing boring blue shirts. (laughs) They're not trying to hide how they feel. They're not even trying to disguise their misogyny. I'm not attractive to them or a mother, so therefore, I'm worthless. Thank you. Can you do one little thing for me? Yeah. Can you turn around and smile, please? (laughs) Okay, are you ready? (laughs) It's terrible. It was all right. I was kind of expecting oh, some sort of Jack Nicholson. Oh, no. It's so shit. It took so long and there was a crowd. It was well, it's not something you do naturally, is it? If, someone, if you have to turn around, it's usually like, what the fuck do you want? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What? Like that? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. It's interesting what you say. You mentioned in that piece about, about the projection on you that you don't have children at home. Mm. Uh, and also you mentioned, you mentioned that in the book, but also you mentioned projections that people put on you because you don't drink alcohol. Yeah. And I'm sure there's many people in this room that either don't have children or don't drink alcohol. And that happens. I mean, I don't have children. It happens to me too. People have a lot of questions about it. That's got to be exacerbated by the fact that you're famous, clearly, because then everybody wants to have a view on it. Yeah. Does it make writing this, did it make that daunting or did it make it quite cathartic? Um, it meant, it made it cathartic. Um, I mean, the process of writing a book was daunting in itself, but I think actually what you're saying is it made it very cathartic because... I got to say my piece without interruption. So I got to have a whole chapter about how I don't like kids. And not that, oh, I just, well, I I mean, I love everybody else's, but I just don't really, no, I fucking hate them. (laughs) They're annoying. They interrupt conversations with my friends. I can't ring my friends anymore because my friends are like, put that down. No, put that down. And I'm like, me, I'm not touching anything. (laughs) I don't like kids. And that is seen like I am some kind of freak. Yet, 
since the book came out, I've had so many messages from women going, oh, thank God, like, I'm the same. And yes, there's loads of people who have kids, and God bless you, because otherwise the world would stop. I understand how it works. But I have so many people who've sent me messages saying, I don't want kids, I don't really like kids, and now I feel like it's like I'm allowed to say it because... I and also because I didn't have to I didn't say it and then have somebody interrupt and say oh well let me tell you oh my kids are lovely oh, let me tell you. I got to actually talk about it for a decent length of time in the book and then absolutely everybody can have their opinion afterwards but to be able to get that out yeah. felt really healthy and also if you're going to write a book you can't I just don't think I could not have included it I think I have to it has to be warts and all yeah, um, and, I, and I agree. I'm, like I say, it's, uh, I understand completely your decision not to have children. Your decision not to eat cheese, I will always have a problem with. <laughs> <laughs> I do have it on pizzas when it acts like a glue. Uh, pizzas are rubbish without cheese. It just rolls off. Uh, but I don't, yeah, I don't, I've got more of a problem with people who eat cheese than people who've got kids, to be honest. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's just like the inner scrapings of an old man's sock. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. But it but tastes surprisingly good, given that description. <laughs> so you agree that it does smell like that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it certainly does. Um, something else that you and I have in common, you talk about one of the very first things you say in this book um, is that the things that people need to know about you are, and the first one is that you are working class, mm. and that you have a chip on your shoulder about it. Mm. Yeah, which clearly speaks to me. Um, and you and I keep finding ourselves sitting on stage in places that are essentially, especially middle class. Mm. We're, here we are today. Uh, you, Sarah I know, and I did I... The, the Hay Festival together. That was, oh, that was something hilarious. else altogether. Um, they didn't have a translator. Um, <laughs> but I think they could have done with one, not for you, but for me. But we did have in the Q&A. Yeah. Oh, by the way, we do have a Q&A section at the end of the show, but we did have a question. You'll have to speak clearly. <laughs> And neither of us understood it because they were so fucking posh. <laughs> Marcus Brickstock had to step in as a translator. Marcus Brickstock had to help. Because uh, <laughs> he, is, he is posh, so it's fine. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was, it was, you have to own it though. You can't, because if somebody asks a question and you can't understand it, you yeah. can't just guess. So no. I just had to go, I'm so sorry, but you're so fucking posh. I have no clue what you said. <laughs> Uh, that's what she said I shit you not that's what she said is it something you become more comfortable with as as it goes along I think I I try to just treat everybody as they are to me rather than what class they are because it's so nobody knows where where the class lines lie and people used to say it to me oh it's which newspaper you read and I always read the Guardian so that made me middle class and I was like well but my dad works down the pit and my my mum's a, a homemaker, and I just this. I don't. I don't know. I don't. I think, it, and also nobody reads newspapers now. Anyway, like, well, which bit of Twitter means that I'm middle class? Yeah. I don't understand. I um, I still consider myself to be working class, and loads of people have a problem with that. But I still consider. I don't. I, I just think it's in you. I don't you, think it changes. Um, I know a lot of people disagree with that. No, well, I agree because there's a couple of things that you say in your book that really sort of chimed with me. For example, mm. um, the story that you tell about Father Christmas which is that your parents told you that they sent money to Father Christmas yes. for to pay for the present. Yeah, so we, we would write an, uh, a note to Santa and uh, it would go in the lobby and it would be whisked away by the fairies. Uh, so all of that was happening. But we were told an amount... Uh, and that it was an amount that my mum and dad were sending to Santa. Santa was essentially like a personal shopper for yeah. us. <laughs> uh, 
So, and I think it was just because my mum and dad thought it was important that we identified where the money came from and that the reason we didn't always see my dad a lot was because he was working yeah. his arse off. He, did, he worked um, electrical engineer down the pit and he did uh, 50 weeks a year uh, and seven days a week. So he didn't have days off a week he w- and sometimes sort of 12, 18 hour shifts. Uh, so he had two weeks off every year and that was it. And sometimes if he got a bit of overtime, the money would be a bit bigger. And, it would, and we knew where it came from. Yeah. We knew that when we didn't always see my dad that much, we knew that that was because he was working really hard and that meant that we could have sometimes nice things. And I thought it was... I thought, you know, when you think whatever happens to you as a kid is just what happens to everybody. And I thought everybody yeah. knew that. And then when, it was, when I put it in the book, a lot of people were like, oh, my God, that's such a great idea. Yeah, well... Because yeah, well, you you say, right, we, that's not what happened in our house. What happened in our house is Father Christmas came and there was a pillowcase at the bottom of the bed and he left an assortment of crap in it, basically, which was like a couple of pens and a bit of glitter and some bubble bath. And then my mum and dad paid for a bike. And it was very clear the bike said from mum and dad on it because there's no way my dad was letting some guy who works one day a week get credit. <laughs> one day a year. Credit for, for paying yeah. for that bike, yeah. <laughs> That was his. Sunday's getting no fucking credit in our <laughs> house. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Have we got time? We, what time? Oh, we, we have oh, no, time for we another do, reading. Should I we think do another, it'd be nice to do another one. one? Uh, this is called... Hold on, I should feel like I've got my back to you guys. That bit better. Um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I look like. I've got socks on and chip nails. Um... This is called the Poo Holiday of 2011. (laughs) Gary, my husband, doesn't fly, so we've always had to be quite creative with holidays. This instance was just a few days in Brighton. I love Brighton. I never normally remember which year I did what, which is why this book is occasionally quite vague. I sometimes just remember things by hairdo. Blonde ball cut, then the perm years. Short like my sisters, short enough cut on myself to save money. Blonde bob, long brown hair, and now. But this holiday has a name. Most holidays are known by the place or who you went with. Some examples you could use. Spain with the girls. Cornwall with the folks. Malaga with that twat. (laughs) This holiday's name is the Pooh Holiday of 2011. The first instance of crap happened on our way down to Brighton. Simple this was, stopped at the services for a wee, where I trod in dog shit as I stepped back into the car. Gary pulled into a lay-by where I spent 15 minutes meticulously cleaning the dog shit from the grooves of the left shoe of a very old pair. I used tissues, wipes and cotton buds. Then, when it was definitely clear of shite, I threw the shoe in the bushes. It took the full 15 minutes of retching and de-shitting for me to realise that they were a very old battered shoes I should have binned ages ago. My husband couldn't quite believe what had just happened. But he was about to pay me back substantially. Part two of three involved Jimmy Spices. I genuinely thought it was called Jimmy Five Spices because I clearly got the all-you-can-eat world buffet restaurant mixed up with that bloke Gaza used to knock about with Jimmy Five Bellies. <laughs> I blame comedian Carl Donnelly for this part he had rec- as he had recommended the eatery of wonder. Imagine every kind of food you can think of, all buffet style. Mm. Of course, all Gary ate was meat. 
Meat's from around the world, of course. But meat, just, just meat. When we checked into our posh Brighton hotel, we didn't think for a second that hours later we'd be scouring the room for something to unblock the toilet with. (laughs) At one point, he shouted from the bathroom, a coat hanger, pass me a coat hanger. (laughs) I shouted back, they're padded. (laughs) We should have stayed in a Premier Inn after all. But this hotel clearly had what my husband describes as an eco-toilet. He would rather believe that all modern toilets are equipped for a lesser amount of shite due to the environment than admit he is older and fatter and eats more meat than ever before. We tried all the usual ways of unblocking the toilet. A carrier bag, a small towel. These methods involve creating a vacuum and quacking the poo away. They didn't work. He tracked down a hardware shop and came back with a huge bottle of some kind of industrial fluid. Maybe it would dissolve the poo mountain. Nope. In the end, I suggested he ring downstairs to see if the hotel had a maintenance man. We had three more days there and I was going to need to wee and poo myself pretty pretty soon. I told him to make up a story about how he'd spilled something and then mopped it up with the loo roll, then tried to flush the loo roll and accidentally blocked the toilet. I sometimes think he doesn't listen to me at all. He rang downstairs and said, excuse me, but I've done a massive poo and it won't go away. And it won't go away. Is there a 50-year-old man you can send up to help me? (laughs) To be fair, he just asked for a maintenance man, but his voice said, an older bloke, like a dad, please. (laughs) While I was clenching my arsehole, mostly from embarrassment, but also because I had something solid on the horizon, there was a knock at the door. No burly man, just a young, slight French girl holding a giant plunger. My husband, ever the gent, said, I can't let you see this, but I will borrow that. (laughs) Thanks, love. He took the plunger and shut the door. Plunger worked. Remember, this all happened on day one. (laughs) Day fucking one. By day three, it was very obvious that something else was now blocked. The husband. (laughs) Too Too much meat had taken us through Pooh Mountain to a brick wall like the one Wiley Coyote uses to kill the roadrunner. But on this one, he'd painted a big sore tummy. He would try everything. Padded hangers, carrier bags, hand towel, industrial fluid. He even went to the NHS walk-in centre and asked for an arse plunger, or whatever the medical term is. (laughs) At one point, he had all of this in his system. Prune juice, two bottles of. Syrup of figs, one bottle of. Grapes, some of. Over-the-counter bad stuff as recommended by the doctor at the NHS walk-in place. And something something else herbal from one of Brighton's wanky shops. And the maximum dose of Senecot. I was surprised the amount of liquid didn't just force the shit out. I suppose it did, but gradually, thankfully. We were a bit scared. He was just going to go bang! We had second-row seats for Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat that night, and we were very worried the poor bloke's coat was just going to be the one colour at that performance. It was brown and brown and brown. Thank you.
Oh, we love a shit story. <laughs> Can Thanks. I talk to you about confidence? Uh, yes. You, you talk a lot in your book about, you know, some dark times you were bullied quite a lot, mm. you know, and that does leave its mark on people with things like body image, which you also discuss, and yes. self-worth, which you mentioned earlier. Mm. Um, that said, you do a job that lots of people assume means that you are an incredibly confident person. <laughs> How does that they would work? assume wrong. Yeah. Um, I am, so I, uh, I'm more confident on a stage than I am off a stage. Is that weird? I think that's quite weird. Um, I think the reason... I'm actually, I would say no, but I could see why some people yeah. might think it was. I think the reason is um, I am a massive control freak and when I'm on a stage, I'm to a degree in control of what's happening. So um, say I'm, it's different to do sort of a book event because you guys are all really nice and polite and lovely. Um, sometimes when you do stand-up, as you know, because Hannah used to do stand-up, um, they can be drunk or, or obnoxious or arsy or anything. Um, but I still feel like I'm in control. And the reason is... Uh, sort of anything could happen, but I am the one with a microphone. I am generally, I'm always sober because I don't drink, and sometimes they might be drunk. Uh, and this is this might be their first time heckling, but this is not my first time dealing with a heckler. But put me in a party. Oh, God. Um, it, you know, the, you will always find me in a kitchen at parties. Yeah. You will always find me <laughs> not at a party. <laughs> um, I, I'm not a party goer. I'm not, I don't, I don't go and sit in pubs and things like that. I'll go out. If I go out with friends, it's a small group of friends or one friend and in a restaurant. Or, um, But I'm just... The confidence is faked in the beginning. So when I get on stage, it's faked. And then as soon as people are listening and it's going okay, then the confidence comes with that. But actually, off stage, I'm, I have no confidence at all. And it's such a weird thing to say. And I just... I always consider myself to be a work in progress in all of these things. I never think you ever are finished, but I always, always, also always think that there's improvement to, to be you know, found. Um, and I think while it's interesting that people would assume that somebody who does what I do is confident, I think it's really healthy for people to know that they're not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I would agree. You offer an awful lot of good advice in this book. As well. In fact, Sarah is the person who gave me the best piece of advice I think anyone's ever given me, which oh. is if you're going to appear on stage, always have a change of clothes. Um, because if you I, eat as many donuts as I eat, it's yeah. like a donuts are very hazard. scary yeah. pre-gig food. Yeah, there's too many what I call jam anuses <laughs> on a donut, and it can go fucking everywhere. Yeah. And you are a spiller. I'm a spiller. A, you're a, a spiller. spiller. Yeah. And it is good advice to always yeah. have a spare top. Sometimes you don't need it, and they're the ones where you kiss your guns on the way home and think, "Woo, I didn't need my spare top," and you keep it in your bag for the next fucking time. Absolutely. That's great advice. What's the best advice anybody's ever given you? Um, I think it's from... So my dad gave me some excellent advice. Uh, my dad is very uh, positive by nature, and I think he's where I get it from. He, um, he sees hard work and being a grafter as probably the best thing you can be. Um, and he gave me the advice that there's no such thing as can't. Uh, there's only one thing you can't do. And the only one thing you can't do is stick your bum out of your bedroom window and run downstairs into the garden and throw stones at it. <laughs> Everything else is achievable. <laughs> and he's right. He is right. I think he is right. I think uh, too many people accept uh, doors shut in their faces. And when you do stand-up, in the beginning, it's quite a, it's quite a weird... that You, you need it because you love it but regularly it goes wrong, regularly people won't book you, regularly it's hard work, 
And you need that kind of tenacity to keep going with it. And if you apply that to everything that you do, then you will achieve more than maybe if you accept the doors to close. If a door closes on me, I just think, there must be another way in. There's always fire exits, right? Yeah, um, cat flaps. Yeah, <laughs> cat flaps. Well, I mean, confident. I would get a fucking arm <laughs> through a cat flap. Um, I <laughs> so to me, that was... Yes, it's a silly way of saying it, but it is great advice to just basically say, just try, just keep trying, because you'll get there. And I, yeah. yeah, and it, and also it depends on how big your ass gets and the sort of format layout of your house, because maybe that one's feasible as well. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should try that a bit later. <laughs> oh wow! Okay. I will Excuse tumble down the stairs. Um, I think we're around the time. Is it time for? Oh, it's time for Q and A. Be asking some questions. Yeah. yeah. So, um, can we have the lights up, please, Flower? Um, we do have two microphones. Oh, we've got a nice fella here, nice flower here. Um, put your hand up. Also, I don't want to. It's quite hard to see you guys here because of the lights. So, if you've got a question here and you don't think I can see you, can you just say here and we'll find you. We'll come to you. So, does anybody have a question and they'd like to put their hand up? And we'll start on this. We've got. Oh, we've got over here one. Oh, we've got one here, and then we'll come to you next, Flower. Hi, love. Is there um, any subject that you consider too sensitive to use for stand-up? Um, uh, no, in answer to your question. Um, I think, um, I don't think there's anything you can't talk about. I think it depends on the angle you come in at. So I think you can talk about um, misogyny, you can talk about race, you can talk about uh, homophobia, all these things, as long as the angle that you're coming in at is a healthy one, every subject to me is up for discussion because if it's not then where is the sort of freedom of speech and, and to discuss something is to make people have a conversation about it and maybe to potentially understand each other's opinions uh, so I don't think there's anything you can't talk about there's things that I might choose to not talk about there's some things that I'll mention to my husband and he'll go can we have some bit of privacy uh, <laughs> can I tell him about no I can't tell him about that uh, but mostly if it's funny it goes in that's my general rule <laughs> so I don't think there's anything but I think it's about the um the angle that you come in at to make sure that's a healthy one does that answer your question good thank you we got any we got oh hello Hello. Oh, you've got a microphone as well. I know, and I'm all the way up here. Hello. Um, <laughs> Hello. Have you ever been asked any sort of particularly ridiculous interview question that's made you lose your shit? Because I, I think that people ask women particularly ridiculous interview questions, like oh, yeah. how do you balance work and home? Nobody asks well, men that ever. We, like, <laughs> we've got an, a quick <laughs> interesting story about that. We did a, 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 we always do panel shows uh, that are all women, and we did a panel show this week with all men for once, and as a joke... I open with the question, how do you mix having a career and children? And they all wanted to answer it. And so they all I think had actual answers. It was lovely. They yeah. were like, well, we share a calendar and we let each other know when we're going to be working. It's really nice. Um, a, a woman once, I was sitting on a high stool in the Novotel at Euston, near Euston Station and a woman from a woman's magazine asked me how many sexual partners I'd had. <laughs> yeah. And I laughed and said, what's the next question? And she said, you're not going to answer. And I said, no, I'm fucking not. <laughs> I think that's because I'm 42. I think if I'd, I started standing when I was 29, so the first interviews I did were then. If I'd started when I was 19, I might have been more susceptible to falling down, kind of, you know, and, and answering questions, like, and then immediately regretting them. Um, but I, because I'm older, I just say no. 
a lot. Was she a journalist or was she just filling out a cosmopolitan survey? <laughs> she was just a random woman. Uh, no, she was a, well, I mean, a journalist. I call ju some journalists are journalists and some are journalists and she was definitely one in inverted commas. Thanks, love. Any other questions? We've got one over here. Hello, love. Hello. Firstly, my husband's thinking, do not give that woman a microphone, please. I didn't uh, hear that. Do not give that woman oh, a microphone. A microphone. You? Well, well, let's listen to your question. Well, let's no women will be or fucking pressed in this room, my love. <laughs> yeah. um, the message in your book, and obviously you're a woman in the public eye, and you're a very funny woman, and Thanks. to a lot of us, you are a role model and a bit of an inspiration. Hmm. Is there anyone in the, in the public domain that uh, is a role model for you? Oh, there's so many. Um, I, I tend to look at women in comedy more than anything else because that's my sort of area. Um, I, we did a podcast with um, Kathy Burke and Joe Brand, and it's like we shouldn't have really put them on the same show. We should have spread no. them out a bit because yeah. they were both so incredible. It was and too I, glorious. It was amazing. Um, to be in in the same room as two women that helped me in the beginning to realise how hilarious women are and that it was definitely a possible job uh, was incredible. And so I, I would put those two... Um, obviously, everybody, all women in comedy say Victoria Wood because Victoria Wood was, you know, one of the, the pioneers and, you know, and, and incredible. Um, but, yeah, I would say those... Let's, let's settle for those three. Is that all right? Cool. Thanks. We got any other questions? We've got. Oh, here we go. We'll come. We'll come. We'll come back to you. Let's see. What, where's the one over here? Give us a wave. Hello, love. Hiya. Hi. Um, Rob Webb this morning was giving his talk about his book, and uh, he was talking about how stupid these panel shows are on telly, where they have a, a token woman. Yes. And I know you've been put in that situation, Sarah. So, just how, what do you do? How do you deal with it? How do women challenge that? It's it's very tricky when you are the one woman on the panel, um, because. Um, you are hopefully there on merit because you're good enough. But as soon as it came out that the, the um, panel shows had to, have, had to have a woman on, then the public think, oh, that woman's there because she's ticking a box. When that woman has worked really fucking hard and is definitely good enough to be there, because why would you have somebody on who isn't? Because it's letting everybody down. Um, it's very tricky to be the one woman uh, I love so something like QI is a really good example of I did QI quite recently with all hail Sandy Toxvig. You have to say that before her name because she's incredible. Uh, and I was on the only man was Alan Davis because obviously he's a regular. And I was on with Carrie Ed Lloyd and Alice Levine. And it wasn't labelled like special ladies night. Like get your tampons, girls. There's women on a thing. It was just a normal booking. And she so putting women in. Uh, sort of positions of power means that happens. So instead of having, uh, I'm not saying that Stephen Fry, because there was often multiple women on as well, but that was the first time I'd been on it with multiple women and it wasn't like a special night. Uh, and I think when you are on a thing or on a stage or anything, any women in comedy, you are representing all women and all women in comedy. Because if a bloke doesn't do well at a gig, people go, oh, he's shit. But if a woman doesn't do well at a gig, people go, oh, fucking women are shit. And that's hopefully improving uh, because there are so many women doing it now and so many incredible women coming through uh, and giving them the space uh, to talk. But also, it's just nice sometimes when you're on a thing with another woman. It's almost like, you know, the world. 
I think it's... <laughs> I sat next to Sandy once, and uh, I did The Unbelievable Truth, the David Mitchell-hosted uh, show, which is really fun. And I sat next to Sandy once before. And normally, if you're on with another woman, they're on, like, another team, or they're over there. Like, something's going to happen if we sit together. And we were both like, ooh, ooh, we get to sit together. And you think, that this shouldn't be this rare. Um, and, but hopefully more things are, are being uh, produced. I, um, I made a, a pilot for Radio 4 of a, a panel show that, fingers crossed, we, might, uh, we don't know yet, but hopefully we get commissioned. And that was um, me hosting and three women and one man. And we never referred to that. There was only one man there. We just made out like that's the world. Um, oh, yeah, you know how there's often just one bloke around. Uh, and we called it Elephant in the Room. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, um, fingers crossed that that might actually happen. Um, but I think it's when you get to a certain position, you need to start um, bringing women up. It's very much about uh, not, so not bringing the ladder up behind you, making sure that you make space for more women. And then if more women do that, then gradually we all come up. And you can only do what you can, but you do what you can. Thanks, love. Um, I think we've probably got time for one more. One. One more. We've got one more oh, question. Hi. I think we've got can time for me? one more. Hiya, love. Hi. Hope you can understand me. I'm I'm quite posh. Well, you are quite posh, <laughs> but you're speaking very clearly. So well done, I'm darling. I'm trying to. Um, <laughs> I I haven't read your book yet. Um, get her out. Can you get her out? <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. So obviously, I'll read about the reasons why you went into comedy. But you've mm. told us you went into comedy at 29, and I'm just wondering whether um, the 29-year-old you would be surprised that you have morphed into something which is, well, not just, but part of what you do is a sort of self-esteem guru for oh. possibly the 16-year-old female readers of your book. And I wonder oh. what you think about that sort I of think, journey um, you seem to have taken. I started doing stand-up as a way to sort of fix myself. So you'll find this as a whole chapter about I got divorced. And I got divorced, and I think a lot of people sort of, slag about or <laughs> get pissed all the time and I'm not a slagger about her and I don't drink and I didn't know how to um, find out who I was you know when you're in a relationship you're a version of you especially a relationship that's not maybe going great and I needed to I saw it as like a regeneration like Doctor Who like I needed to find out who the new me was and stand-up really helped that, because I, I had things I needed to say, and often they were about my divorce. I needed to get stuff out of my system. Um, so I did it as a way of fixing myself. So the idea that my work now might give some people some options or suggestions or way in which they can improve their lives or make themselves feel better or just make them feel fucking normal feels incredible and it was never my intention but if people can um oh god it's so weird to, it's such a hard thing to talk about because you're not allowed in this i think in this country you're not allowed to say like i'm proud of what i've done you're not allowed to say that in america you'd all be like Woo! and here you're like oh my god she's so arrogant um in america you'd be running for office right now <laughs> and i'd get in um i <laughs> i think um I 
work really hard. I try to be a nice person and I try to always learn from my mistakes. I always think that you should never make the same mistake twice. So if you haven't learned from it the first time, there's something wrong. Um, and I, when I was writing the book, because there's something really arrogant about writing uh, your autobiography, because you're basically saying to people, I'm sure you all want to know everything about me. It's such an arrogant thing to do. I couldn't square the circle in my head. So that's why I came up with the idea of some of the things I've gone through and I've learned from, for me, maybe that would help other people and that's where the, the tips come from at the end of every chapter i have no idea if this has answered your question to answer your question i'm surprised that that's happened but i'm thrilled so thanks um are we doing one more reading yes yeah. yes I'll do uh, the small amount of admin that we need to do and then I will do one final reading and um, bid you good night. But um, thank you so much for coming. Can you give a lovely round of applause to my excellent host, Hannah Dunleavy? Thank you. And um, uh, the book, should you, if you'd like to buy it, madam, uh, <laughs> is available in the shop and there are uh, signed copies there if you'd like that. Um, you guys have been so lovely. This is my last book event and there's something very cathartic about a last one that is really fun. So I'm really grateful to you guys for me because otherwise I'd be like, I hate book events. They're all shit. But now I'm like, sort of want to do some more. Um, you guys have been uh, so lovely and I'm so grateful for you uh, being interested enough and, and, you know, buying my book and reading my book because I constantly buy books and very rarely get around to reading them because I'm just busy. So I do audiobooks instead because then it's just like being read to. It's like being a child. Um, so I'm so grateful for the time, is what I'm saying, for the time that you've spent uh, coming here and also reading my book. Uh, this is the last reading. Uh, thank you once again for coming and don't forget to vote for Susan Kalman. <laughs> uh, this is chapter 11, a love letter to my knockers. I love you. You didn't turn up until I left school, so no boys ever got to snap my bra strap. It's very hard to twang a vest. You catch my cake crumbs like nature's bib. I keep my pencils under you. I did that test you're supposed to do and I passed. I can keep a remote control under there. The sky one. <laughs> you stopped men calling me mate on the bus. I used to get called son a lot as a kid, but that might have been the hair. You helped me learn the alphabet. I know, up to H. <laughs> You make a good warm pillow for kittens and husbands. I once cheered up a sad friend by flashing you both, and she laughed from the surprise, I like to think. <laughs> you are the bridge between just kissing and thank God I've shaved me legs, because we're doing it. <laughs> you save me from suffocation. I sleep on my stomach, and you stop me lying too flat. You're like a built-in bumper. It would be hard to crack a rib with these babies on duty. You are the reason I don't really want to lose weight. I'd be left with just a gut rather than curves. The right dress just hangs off you like an awning. I used to avoid tops with buttons down the front as they always puckered. But now I'm 42, I just accept that at some point that day I'll be given anyone who wants one an eyeful. <laughs> In a good bra, you make me feel like a 1950s Hollywood starlet. In a certain nighty, I look like Bubbles de Vere. 
but wowzers is that nighty comfy. In bed, you keep under my arms warm. <laughs> you help me give excellent cushiony hugs. Imagine falling slow motion into a giant marshmallow that smells of Marxies. And because I give good hugs, I get lots of hugs. Your release is the best part of my day. Whether I'm at home, on a train, <laughs> in a cinema, or driving. Taking my bra off is a joy. There are few thrills more intense than driving with no bra on. What if I get pulled over? <laughs> Ma'am, you have your headlights on. They're not my headlights, officer. <laughs> I clearly think all police are American and in porn. <laughs> you are good at motorboating where someone you know puts their face betwixt you and makes the noise of a small engine. This can also be used as self-defense, depending on the size of the boobs and assailant. You can accidentally click a link on my laptop. Your size means I can't see my belly. Therefore, it must not exist. <laughs> Underneath you is the first place I get sweaty. A sign to turn the heating down, like a woozy canary in a mine. I balanced a kitten on one of you once and we watched Bake Off together. Now that's basically how I want to die. <laughs> I think sometimes I forget the size of you. Like last week when I trapped a nipple in a Tupperware box. <laughs> I didn't know it was there until I couldn't shut the fourth side. And remembering how tricky they are to close, I pressed with all of my might. <laughs> it was your fault you shouldn't have been resting on the bench. Thank you very much. You've been a delight. Good night, everybody. Thank you. Sarah's book, How to Be Champion, is out now and available at all decent places that sell books. So have a scout round because if you like laughing and, you know, feeling emotions, you should definitely read it. It's brilliant. That's it from us. Thanks very much for listening and we will speak to you again very soon. Stay frosty. Standard Issue for all women.